Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 348, The Great Rebuilding. First of all folks, a reminder to sign up for the English Revolution Poll and Prize Draw, a chance to tell the world what you think caused the Wars of the Three Kingdoms, and if you wish, to enter a draw to win a 1644 silver penny, worn with pride at the time as a royalist badge, as minted for the king in a city of Oxford under siege. Just go to thehistoryofengland.co.uk to enter. But for the next two episodes, we are going to turn away once more from revolution and all that and instead turn to matters domestic and social. We are going to talk vernacular architecture and then next time how the rich and famous lived in their great prodigy houses. Also, I have decided to get all teacherly on you. So, for each episode, I have also written an article with pictures and plans and so on. So, if you want to know more and visualise these things we're going to talk about, go to the only place that matters, thehistoryofengland.co.uk. Be there or be square. So, the subject of today's episode is a phenomenon that seems to occur around this time of the 16th and 17th centuries in vernacular architecture, the sort of place you and I would have lived in. It is a period that was called, very grandly, in the way that historians used to be grand, the Great Rebuilding. And this leads me, gentle listener, to introduce you to a historian who coined the phrase in an article published in 1953 and set a hair running that continues to roam over the historical landscape. Please give it up, gentle listeners, for William George Hoskins. Big hand, everyone. Come on down. Hoskins was born in 1908 and died in 1992. He was a lovely, lovely writer, was our Hoskins. He came from Devon, and was the proving of that phrase, you can take the man out of Devon, but not Devon out of the man, for he loved his home country all his life and returned there. His strong sense of place and belonging may be a reason why he became a very well-known landscape historian, because he loved the land around him, and he, and another landscape great, Oliver Rackham, are part of the reason that this is a subject I love and enjoy very much, albeit in a thoroughly inexpert way. The other day, for example, my mate Pat brought one of Hoskins's books that had sat on his folks' bookshelf to a boys' weekend away and Pat, Charlie and I wandered over to a village on the North Norfolk coast called Saltmarsh on the strength of Hoskins's elegiac and very personal meanderings and recommendations 
and a joy it was too. And as you can tell, it is also evidence that the three of us are totally rock and roll, a wild lot who know how to have a good time. Hoskins' most famous books, in addition to all his telly appearances, was called The Making of the English Landscape, which was wildly popular. Well, wildly popular in a scale of landscape archaeology books. Incidentally, one more thing. Hoskins, as it happens, set up the very first university department of local history at the University College Leicester, invited to do so there in 1948 by the principal, one Frederick Attenborough. Frederick and Mary Attenborough had three sons, Richard Attenborough, known to the world as Dear Dear Dickie, David Attenborough, the modern-day secular and environmental saint and holder of England's National Treasure Award, and John who was a luminary in the car trade. David Attenborough in particular is constantly and apologetically interviewed by the Leicester Mercury, the local rag, about his experiences being inspired by the granite hills of nearby Charnwood and Braggy Park, and a piece of amber that had been given to him by a pair of Jewish refugees who took refuge in the Attenborough household during the war. Anyway, enough warbling. Let's get on, shall we? So, the Great Rebuilding... What was it? Well, to go forward, we must go back, I deem. For how can you build a future unless you know your past? Discuss. Answers on a postcard. Perfectly possible, actually, I'm sure. But hey, don't tell anyone or they'll stop listening to history podcasts and we wouldn't want that now, would we? So, the ordinary, everyday medieval dwelling that the vast majority of people would have lived in was based around the super-traditional hall building, a designed part of the landscape since, as Ronnie Barker would have it, time immemorial. The hall building, then, had one room open to the roof, with a hole at the top to let the smoke out from a central fire. In bigger structures, let's say a farmhouse, there might be a bay at one or even both ends of the hall, which was used for storage or maybe even sleeping arrangements, but the hall was the only heated part of the house, and so the focus for every kind of daily life. Because if you start too many fires in a low, thatch-covered building, you pretty much soon up with a pile of ash. Peasant dwellings were often very much integrated with their daily work, storage and even livestock. On occasion, the end bays might even have two storeys, but access was very restricted. To get up to the second storey, you'd need to use a ladder. Nor could you move from one bay at one end of the house to a bay at the other if you were grand enough to have them, because, of course, the double-height hall was in the way. There were no corridors or anything like that going along the first floor. Any windows or openings in the walls would be titchy-tiny, because there'd be essentially nothing between the occupants and the North Sea as the wind came whistling through, except maybe leaky wooden shutters. Or more commonly, you'd stretch a bit of linen over the gap, soaked in something like linseed oil. If you were in a farmhouse, the sheds, barns and all that were closely clustered around the hall dwelling and many dwellings were built on the idea that they were temporary. This depends a bit on where you lived. In some parts of England, timber was not that easy to get hold of or at least stone was the local building material and therefore stone houses might be built and just as real men don't cry, stone doesn't rot. But usually, the normal humble dwelling was built of wood, would rot, and therefore regularly be replaced. 
Now, you may remember the phenomenon of the creeping village we talked about ages ago. When a house on one toft fell to pieces because it rotted, you might just build a new one at the end of the street rather than go to the bother of clearing the site. And so, duly, the village slowly crept down the road. Cute. There was another reason also for very simple dwellings. You don't want to be rebuilding Whitehall Palace every couple of years when it rots now, would you? So, it needed to be easy to replace buildings. Keep them simple is not stupid. However, a caution for later is that we tend to overfocus on technology and practicality when thinking about building. And there is a sort of Whig history in this. We imagine that all history has been leading up to the semi-detached, centrally heated, well-plumbed Lego box with carpets and rooms and things. And I guess, in a way we were, it's far nicer than having an outside loo and a bucket. But there are also many cultural aspects to building design as well. Medieval society was one of relatively simple hierarchies, especially the further back you go, very much organised in the country at least, around community living and working. So, hall-type structures suited the culture you could cram everyone in, and as well as, frankly, being the easiest format for the vast majority to manage. But it has to be said these buildings were full of smoke, and honestly, right up to the 19th century, the poorer dwellings could be utterly abject in most villages. I mean, we go on about conditions in the shock Victorian cities like Manchester in the 19th century, but believe you me, people weren't living in palaces in the countryside either. But from some time in the 16th century, Hoskins detects a change. One of the other things I need to write about was the rise of antiquarian and local writing in England around this time, which means we now have a lot more physical descriptions of the countryside around. But anyway, another day, another time. But in the meantime, here is a man called Richard Carew in his Survey of Cornwall, written in the 1580s, about some changes that he's been noticing recently in his hood. First of all, he describes the traditional Cornish dwelling as built with walls of, of earth, low thatched roofs, few partitions, no planchings or glass windows, and scarcely any chimneys other than a hole in the wall to let out the smoke. Planchings, by the way, meant floorboards. The floors would be beaten earth, essentially, he's saying. Inside the house, there were very few possessions indeed. Their bed, straw and a blanket. As for sheets, so much linen cloth had not yet stepped over the narrow channel between them and Brittany. To conclude, a mazer and a pan or two comprised all their substance. Now a mazer was a wooden bowl, possibly the root meaning of Admiral Mazer Rackham's name in Ender's Game when he took on the aliens, he who defeats the bugs with a wooden bowl but on the other hand, possibly not. I think pan becomes to mean a lustrous silk velvet material. But do you know what? I don't think there was a lot of lustrous silk velvet material in Cornish medieval peasant dwellings in the 16th century. I could be wrong. So I went hunting in the dictionary of archaic words, and it could be a sort of skin bed covering or a flimsy side panel. Or alternatively, a parsnip in Cornish patois. 
But Richard of Carew was no Baldrick to dream of a turnip in of his own in the country, so maybe not that either. More likely to be a simple skin covering. So inside, all they had was a wooden bowl and a bit of a bed covering. Anyway, Carew then goes on to describe a change. But now, most of these fashions are universally banished, and the Cornish husbandman conform himself with a better supplied civility to the Eastern pattern. By the Eastern pattern, I think he's referring to England, rather than, let's say, having the Hagia Sophia in your back garden. In line with Carew's observations, we also hear from a man called Robert Furs, who succeeded to a new estate in 1593, and notes that he built a new entrance to his house. He put a ceiling on the hall. He glazed the windows. And he had a proper granite staircase to his new second floor. Now that's house pride shining through. Now, it's difficult to be totally accurate about this, as Hoskins observed, because the survival of actual buildings to the modern day varies according to region. So in the Cotswolds, quite a few buildings survive because the best local material is stone. In the Midlands, survival is much rarer because building was of timber and clay which rots. This is one of the beauties of the English landscape, and anywhere probably, I guess. You still know you're in Norfolk, and indeed which part of Norfolk, because of the flint or clunch. Or you know they're in Northamptonshire because of the ironstone or Leicestershire granite, chalk, gravel and clay of the East Riding of Yorkshire, black and white timber frames of the Welsh borders, so on and so forth. Much replaced by Victorian brick, of course, but still out there, helping form and retain the local character. Hoskins traced a change in vernacular building almost all over the country, except maybe the four northern traditional counties of Cumberland, Northumberland, Westmoreland and Durham. And it was quite specific about the date range of all this development to boot, 1570s to 1640s and even centering on 1575 to 1625. So what exactly were these changes then? Well, by way of an example, I might take you to a very famous cottage and one on the History of England inaugural tour schedule that cottage in the village of Shottery, once the home of Anne Hathaway. It was bought by one John Hathaway in 1543. Thence came down to Richard Hathaway, whose daughter Anne married some scribbler and city slicker called Bill from the big smoke of nearby Stratford in 1582. Now the Hathaways were yeoman farmers, and the building, originally maybe from the 1460s, was a simple two-celled building, with a door into a passage, kitchen to the right, hall structure to the left, with an hole in the roof. Low, smoky, draughty, all that. At some point, the building was improved, possibly by Bartholomew Hathaway, Richard's son and Anne Hathaway's brother, around about 1610, though in the house itself there is an inscription much later, 1697, but that could just be for repairs. They'd acquired the freehold by this time and were going up in the world, so they built a new, taller section to extend the house. Then they built a big chimney stack in the middle of the house made of brick and inserted a ceiling in the hall and a new section, subdividing the first floor into smaller rooms and they would have built a staircase to boot so the rooms were accessible along the first floor. 
since there was now no hall room that went all the way up to the roof, you could walk your way along the length of the first floor from end to end of the building. By golly, how exciting that must have been. What sumptuous comfort. So that, my friends, is why we are going there on the tour, not because of the scribbler, but because this is a great example of what Hoskins was describing as the great rebuilding and the changes that were typical of improvements being made all over England. In summary, the changes were broadly two sorts of types. Either the substantial rebuilding of old dwellings and the modernisation of existing, essentially, or completely new builds. But modernisation and expansion of existing farmhouses was the most common by far probs. The focus of the changes was to improve the internal space, create more of it at the same time. And so the Hathaway residence was typical. A porch or lobby entry might be added, a chimney with a central hearth, multiple flues, often central so that it could then serve both ends of the house efficiently, sitting at one end of the hall rather than having the hearth in the middle of the hall as for a medieval house. Or, for the more wealthy, there might be two chimneys for larger developments. Behind the chimney, there might be added a permanent staircase because then you'd add a ceiling over the hall and rooms in the first floor. On the ground floor, if your new ceilinged main room was on the left, the other side of the chimney you might now have a parlour as well as a kitchen so you could noodle for a while. If you were relatively posh, you might put your best bed in that room for guests when they came. And obviously, leave your second best bed for your wife and yourself in your will. And then, wonder of wonder, you might have glazing in your windows. No more North Sea wind for supper. Obviously, there was lots of variation in building material, wealth and all that. So your husbandman, with a small holding, might be only able to afford a few improvements. But wealthy yeomen or lesser gentry might even begin to look at their social superiors and try to imitate what they were doing, imposing some sort of symmetry on buildings. But the trend of improvement generally is there. For the grander, in 1613, one Gervais Markham wrote a book for the aspiring, the aspiring yeoman, and he called it The English Husbandman. It includes a little map, which is on the website, by the way, which might serve as a template for the upper reaches of what peasant society were aiming to live in a sort of H-shaped house. It has a large lobby entrance in the middle of the two wings of the H, a central hall, five service rooms in one wing, and three larger rooms for entertaining in the other, two staircases, two floors. Now that's very much for the upper reaches and would have been beyond most, but that was what they were now aiming for and hoping to live in. A much more common arrangement might be like the Pendine farmhouse which is preserved at the Weald and Downland Museum which sort of went halfway. There they couldn't afford the glass so they still had titchy little windows despite extending the house. It's about what you can afford to do at the time. Also worth noting that for most below gentry level brick was way too pricey to be used for anything more than the chimney. You couldn't use it for the walls and that sort of thing. The chimney that was the number one priority. Warmth, clean air, more heated rooms. Well, you can imagine what a change this must have made to people's daily lives. The smoke was gone. The windows were larger, so everything was more airy and light. And yet at the same time, toasty warm by comparison. I mean, it must have been a revelation. Hoskins also noted at the same time 
that the number of furniture and fittings seems to increase in wills and inventories. Maybe there'd be cupboards left. Maybe they'd have more than one chair. You could have rooms designed for specific purposes like kitchen, family parlour, sleeping, storage, rather than everything happening in the one hall at the same time. I mean, wild privacy. And it was not only the internal life that was impacted. England's environment changed a bit too, because there were more buildings turning up. Hoskins identifies a good deal more building on wastes during Elizabethan days of new houses mainly confined to cottages. And at the same time, farms began to grow in other ways, adding barns, kiln houses, smithies, that sort of thing. And more of the houses looked different than they used to. So there's a very famous quote from William Addison in 1577. When I say famous, I mean sort of famous, not like, you know, Liverpool FC or Adele or whatever, but very famous indeed to a very small number of people. Anyway, in his description of England, Addison wrote with marvel of the multitude of chimneys lately erected and went on to enthuse in their young days, Harrison here is probably referring to maybe 1510 to 1520, in their young days there were not above two or three chimneys, if so many, in most uplandish towns of the realm. But each one made his fire against a reredos in the hall where he dined and dressed his meat. So tell me why, everyone. Just tell me why. Why is this happening? Just for a bit more historiography and for the record, Hoskins was writing before Campop. Campop is not a fizzy drink, but trendy, cool and generally long-haired shorthand for the Cambridge Group for the History of Population and Social Structure, set up in 1964 to nail the demographic history of England and Wales, because all this uncertainty hanging around in shopping malls beating up old ladies was annoying everyone. So under the leadership of one Professor Wrigley, and building on techniques I think developed by French historians, they duly so nailed it. So it's really interesting actually reading Hoskins's first article because he had to reach for far more generalities. He didn't have the certainties that came with Campop. He has to use textual sources and such like to look for reasons why all this rebuilding happened. By and large, he gets much of it right, or at least he gets the general story of the growth in population and wealth bit right. So essentially, as previously covered, population between 1540 and 1640 was going through a century of growth. Unprecedented since the 13th century. We've talked about this plenty, so if this is a surprise to you, well, you know, keep up, with you? Just kidding, obviously. Population growth impoverished many of the wage labourers and cottagers with under and unemployment, rising food prices, falling real wages. If you were poor and didn't have land, money was short, Times were hard, and there's no cash for a Christmas card. But if you had land, well, this was a great time. Prices for your goods were going up. Labour costs were falling. Even if you were a tenant, if you had long-lasting customary tenures, which were still hanging around, it was very hard for the landowner to raise your rent, so your costs didn't go up either. And anyway, if you had a good tenant, it was in a land owner's interest to keep hold of them. We often talk about social injustice, outrage, rent-racking landlords and all that, but you know, it's quite probable that the majority of landowners thought, as did this Devonian yeoman, 
advising his successors of how to deal with their tenants. Burden them not with more fines, rents or services more than they be well able to pay you. Displease not an honest, friendly tenant for a trifle or small sum of money. So, Hoskins was right to suggest that an increasing number of families had some money saved up after a few good years of good times. So why not spend it on a more comfortable living environment? And then there are good technical reasons. Firstly, brick became much more cheaply and widely available as the organisation of rural crafts grew. I don't think there was any great breakthrough in technical innovation. Maybe the greater use of coal would be the thing. Probably it's more a question of rising demand and greater commercialisation. The same thing happened with glass. This appears to have been one of the many benefits of immigration and the great benefit we gained from France's loss of the hostile environment for Huguenots. French experts were brought across to England as long as they promised to train locals in their skills. Knowledge transfer, as we call it in the development business these days. Interestingly enough, there also seems to have been a benefit from those evil monopolies we hear about so much. Well, there was at least in the case of glass. Because in the early 17th century, one Robert Mansell acquired the glass monopoly and the assured income and rising demand allowed him to invest. London was a centre, but he took production to near where there was a supply of coal, Tyneside in the northeast of England, and he set up factories there. It's quite interesting why he did that. He may well have found that coal was a better energy source, and it's difficult to overemphasise the importance of coal in the Industrial Revolution, coming to a podcast near you soon. But it was also because the Elizabethan Parliament limited, by law, the use of wood for fuel, because it was worried about excessive use of high woods and the stock of building timber. It is worth noting that all this rebuilding was very probably very much part of the loss of the stock of building timber, because to build a two-bay house could use over a 100 trees. And you have to bear in mind that much wood was anyway not managed at the time for high wood, tall trees and building timber. Instead, as various kinds of coppicing, pollarding and wood pasture designed for a mixed economy, so trees were cut back over several year cycles to provide suitable wood spars to make hurdles or charcoal burning, burning in fires, bodging for chairs and so on. And so the large timber stock was very precious and had to be protected. Anyway, so not only were house owners or tenants richer, materials like glass and brick were now cheaper and more available to boot. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Alongside this wealth, commercial and capitalist farming was now firmly embedded in the very weft and warp of the English agrarian economy. Subsistence farming on its own was now increasingly rare, 
You focused on what you were good at locally, at least in part, and you supplemented the rest you needed by buying it in. Distribution channels were better established, the market was increasingly regional or even national, contract relationships underpinned society. And so, the relatively simple structure of medieval society, lord, peasant, religious, merchant, was dizzyingly complex by comparison in the early modern age now. There was nobility, gentry, gentlemen, yeomen of various hues, husbandmen, the middling sort in towns and countries, retailers, rural craft workers. The great rebuilding of vernacular buildings, Hoskins therefore put down to the middling sort. Primarily in the country, the yeomen and below them, the husbandmen, who now suddenly could afford a better living environment, just like the Hathaways. However, all this social complexity meant that there were now social pressures and aspirations too, with a capital A, capital P. As we saw in the commotion time, 1549, the old leaders of peasant society, the yeomen, now saw themselves aspiring to be part of the gentry and gentlemen, no longer head of the peasant grievance committee, but more culturally in tune with the knobs. So there are other reasons why you might want your farm now to look like a house laid out on a symmetrical H-plan, like a sort of mini Hardwick Hall or something. It said something about you. That then moves us on to historical controversy. So far then, great idea, well done, Hoskins, man. But you know, there's nothing a good historian likes than a good, grand narrative to snipe at tall poppy syndrome, and the great building is no different. Hoskins very openly noted that he was talking here mainly about rural society. The work had not been done to talk about towns, so we'll come to that in a mo. In the 1970s, one of the historians who took aim at the theory was one Robert Meachin. He used a technique of basing his analysis on buildings dated by the builders in some way, and he came up then with a graph that gave much later dates for the rebuilding, around the 1690s and onwards. And then he painted a general trend in a much wider arc for the various stages than Hoskins had built, starting off with the development in late medieval England of a growth in permanent building away from the old, oh, it'll soon rot, we'll build a new one, all the way through to the 18th century change from local vernacular styles to a much more national pattern book catalogue of standard styles demanded by so-called polite society all over the country. From there, the Grand Huskinian theory descended into a sort of intellectual mush. Chris Curry cast doubt on the idea that we could make any conclusions from surviving buildings because, by definition, it ignored all the buildings that hadn't survived, which were often built over, destroying the evidence of what happened when exactly. Eric Mercer suggested that different parts of England developed at different stages and at times, so any kind of national story was probably pretty questionable before the 18th century. Such is the way, folks, that grand theories die. You gradually slice bits off until nothing is left. Then the debate moved on again. Feminist historians made the point that we tend to focus on practical matters of economics of social change but that the internal space was primarily seen as a woman's arena, and therefore gender, 
and how women affected internal design is critical to this. And once you've accepted that point, it makes you realise there's much more going on here than simple economics. Space is deeply affected by cultural considerations, gender roles, social roles, cultural impacts such as popular folklore and witchcraft even. After all of that, however, Hoskins's story has survived, the sign of a strong basic hypothesis. There seems little doubt that 16th and 17th centuries did not just see another cycle of rebuilding as was going on all the time. Actually, they saw a striking change in the way that buildings were laid out and organised. And all the slicing has not really destroyed Hoskins's central thesis. In fact, it's refined it. So one of those historians slicing was called Johnson with a theory of closure. The theory of closure looked at social and cultural change and how that reflected itself in the use of the built space. Hoskins hadn't ignored culture, actually. He saw the downward flow of the impacts of the Renaissance in a greater desire for privacy. But this was about more than privacy. The growth of capitalism in the rural economy created much social polarisation, as we've noted. The middling sort wanted to carve out a space for themselves. They were distinctive, but also saw themselves as becoming part of the gentility, as we said. So the extra space and division of houses allowed a greater separation to start between master and servant, which had never been there before. Separate bedrooms for the family, rather than everyone bunking down together with the staff in the hall. In the hall, some houses went to the bother of having a raised dais, like a sort of mini Lord's Hall. Family up here, workers and servants down there. When Stephen Mileson, who you may remember talking to me on this podcast about South Oxfordshire, looked in detail at nucleated villages such as Cuxham, it became clear that the whole positioning of buildings was beginning to change. Whereas medieval buildings sat directly on the road and green, now the smarter set began to move their houses back a bit from the road to reflect their higher status and their ability to create a level of privacy that the poor couldn't afford to have. They even began to orient the fronts of their houses at right angles to the road so that people couldn't look in, and again so they had more privacy. Functional farm buildings began to move further away from the central house for the same reason of separation, privacy and a bit of peace and quiet. So this is another example of enclosure of different social spheres, similar, I suppose, if you will, with the enclosure going on in the fields, the move away from a single community of social organisation towards an emphasis of separate spheres and individual wealth that characterise the capitalisation and fragmentation of English society. Inside, the ability to move the kitchen, parlour, storage area away from the main shared room also saw a representation of that impact of gender. Increasingly, there was the start of a separate sphere for women and a separate sphere for men. Well, we haven't talked about the urban environment because that was another slice taken from the body of Hoskins's great re rebuilding. He hadn't thought about towns, only the country, and since 1953 a lot of work and thinking had been done about it. One of those was a piece of work carried out in Norwich, which is, as the council declares to the world, a fine city. A delightfully English style of understated marketing slogan that speaks to my soul. 
And as a fine city, Norwich has many early modern building survivals. It is most certainly a thoroughly lovely city. Historian Chris King then concluded that actually Norwich generally supported Hoskins' thesis and thus the grand narrative continues to grow. But he made the point that in an urban context, it all happens rather earlier. Probably this is because urban society had much earlier become more complex and commercial than in the countryside and the process of economic and social differentiation correspondingly earlier. He also stresses the impact that noble innovators had on the development of town housing. In a town context, that's often because the nobility are very much present there in their local town, cheek by jowl with their fellow townsmen of all rank, and were carrying out their own building for themselves or for investment. And the same changes were also going on not just at the private house level there. Catherine Giles, she also looked at religious and guild buildings in York and identified the same separation of space as meetings and governance became more socially stratified. And so, the importance of social and cultural factors are clearly central to this great rebuilding in the urban environment too. Now then, while I'm on nobility and towns, I might also mention there are two strands of building that kind of come together a bit in the sponsorship of public buildings in the town. Generally, the great rebuilding can firstly be broadened out to public buildings as a category. There's an enormous growth in schools, university buildings, almshouses, hospitals. There's also a growth in the building in towns, which we'll come to, and also at town halls. All of this growth was driven by a couple of factors. Firstly, that general population growth develops increasing demand for houses in towns, though that was quite uneven depending on where you lived. So some places like Exeter, York and especially London grew quite wildly. Others actually stagnated or even fell. But overall, the picture is that the urban population grew in line with general growth and a bit more. The 17th century in particular saw the start of the urban growth that would explode in the 18th century and be the main driver of the Industrial Revolution. But secondly, the number of incorporated towns grew strongly after the Reformation. One argument for why that happened was that with the dissolution of the monasteries, townspeople looked around for other sources of security and they found it in civic institutions. This drove the growth of town corporations with big increases in the number of boroughs out there with the kind of freedoms and self-governance that towns enjoyed. This then has an impact, first of all, on the building of town halls. And I might need to indulge in some additional noodling here, if you don't mind. There are two groups with a particular interest in building town halls. There is the elite of the town itself, the civic leaders, guilds, oligarchs and so on. But there are also the local magnates and nobility in the surrounding countryside. Often, design-wise, town halls are pretty functional. Almost always they're bang in the middle of the town, in the marketplace, a symbol of corporate identity, pride and administration. A standard model for town hall design was a lower open ground with arcades on three sides for use by storekeepers and traders, and then an upper storey for meetings or administrative functions. So both the two groups, magnates and townspeople, often wanted to use town halls as an opportunity 
to emphasise their power and their influence and, you know, just their general greatness. For the nobility, this was something they were well used to doing, emphasising their importance to local society and community, driven by the desire to emphasise their status. But also, more generously, they reflected a genuine commitment to a public service, a duty of the nobility reinforced by the influence of the Renaissance humanism. So I have two examples to give you of noble building, and interestingly, both are from recusant Catholic families, and there is a message in that. So on the one hand, although we talk a lot about the persecution of Catholics, in fact, very few of the noble families are forced out of their leading community roles by fines or confiscations. The Treshams, who will be one of the examples to follow, do disappear, but essentially they self-combust through a combination of treason and profligacy rather than through persecution. The Stoners, who are the other example, take a very different strategy and just keep their head down and stick around. They're still around, actually, in the lovely Stoner Park today, another destination for Le Tour. But the main point about that is that Catholic families were much excluded from positions of national leadership at court, although, as James and Charles's reign rather demonstrate, you can overemphasise that too. But nonetheless, big Catholic families feel their exclusion from national public life very keenly. In the local community, this is their chance to reassert their role as local leader, patron, and the traditions of generous lordship in the service of community. So, example number one. In little, the little town of Rothwell, there is a very grand and highly decorated town hall. It is covered in inscriptions and coats of arms, proclaiming the importance of the local magnate family, the Treshams, and all their noble alliances. Thomas Tresham was not a believer in subtle philanthropy, purely for the common good, in self-effacing fashion. Indeed, the words, The work of Thomas Tresham Knight is up there carved into Rothwell stone for eternity, just so what no one could possibly forget how important the Treshams were. The other example from the nobility is from my own hood in the little town of Watlington at the foot of the Chiltern Scarp in Oxfordshire. And it's a much more simple and indeed self-effacing example than Tresham's Rothwell. It is, though, a very fine piece of work, especially for a small town, all built in local brick from the nettlebed works up the road. It was built by one Thomas Stoner in 1664, and it has an undercraft for traders, still used for today for grocers, and it's got a first-floor room for the council admin upstairs, and also a little grammar school met there to boot. So that's the nobility. The other group we mentioned were civic leaders. Now, they had a slightly different problem, because unlike the nobility... For many of them, especially in newly incorporated or growing towns, they may not have that noble tradition of assumed legitimacy, status and leadership. After all, they were in trade, darling. They faced competition for their new leadership roles from local aristocracy, ecclesiastical authorities, guilds. So building a civic culture, a new civic culture, was part of the legitimisation of their leadership. And so, new town halls often went along with a lot of painting and imagery of a particular type. This is the start of the additional digression, incidentally, a wart on the wart 
to make a multiple carbuncle of digression. Did you know you were in a digression? It's a bit like the Matrix out here. It's always confused me a little, if I may be rude, about why Elizabethan portraiture is so terribly uninspiring. Probably there's someone somewhere thumping the desk out in fury, someone who actually knows what they're talking about and disagrees. But look, we have the glories of Holbein and Hilliard. And then there's a procession of rather lifeless flat portraits or general scenes. And meanwhile, the Dutch are going potty with astounding art and art everywhere and ordinary houses are plenty. Well, in England, partly this is because patronage for art obviously changes very dramatically. While the idea that the Reformation sees off pictorial art completely is a bit rubbish, the society of the word rather than the satiety of the image is much understated. There is still loads of imagery around, but there's no longer patronage for all that devotional stuff. So that goes. And there's a deal of nervousness then about charges of idolatry. Religious reformers had argued that over-accurate representations of the human form and face might encourage worship of the image and person rather than a focus on divinity. So the need that dominates is much more about this legitimization thing done within safe parameters of realism. So pictorial art, particularly in the new civic centres, focuses not on representing real life, it is instead all about projecting authority through individual and group portraits of benefactors, officials, heroes and heroines, the emblems of royalty as much as the image of individuals. Everything was focused in towns on the new civic culture of decorum, virtue and a corporate identity for the community. There's a similar focus actually in the new long galleries that are appearing in the great houses, a sort of ancestor worship, emphasising achievements past and present. Sometimes the buildings themselves and their design were part of this. A good example then is Exeter Guildhall, rebuilt in unusually grand fashion, an expression of commercial success, growth, civic power and authority, very much drawing on the aristocratic love of classicism to emphasise the corporation's social and cultural chops. OK, noodle, sort of over. What about private building in towns then? Houses and so on. As Chris King and Catherine Giles had concluded, towns also see the same rebuilding as goes on in the countryside. There are two basic models. The nobility. They tended to build on a smaller scale the sorts of buildings that they were used to at their country seats based around a courtyard style, making few concessions to economising on space, even though they're in the middle of a town. Noblesse oblige, after all. I am pointed, as an example, to Plasmore in Conway, North Wales, for a good example of this. And there is a link and pic on the website. There are loads of them in London, of course, at the time, given the presence of court there and all those aristos, but they've all been built over in the name of Mammon, so they don't exist anymore. The other type is much more common, the merchants and private dwellings, and the building and improvement of what we might call the narrow, stacked house. For the more ordinary citizen without the bottomless pockets of the nobility, the maximisation of space was absolutely the thing, keeping the footprint as small as possible. Your wealthy merchant liked such a design because they could have a nice roomy house close to the town centre, and still pay the bills. 
We need an example again. And let us once more cunningly take it from the inaugural History of England tour, where we are going to Stratford. Not to see the bloody bard, oh dearie me no, but to see something about the great rebuilding. So I offer unto you the Harvard House, right in the middle of Stratford. It was built in 1596 for Thomas Rogers, a butcher and cattle merchant by trade. We used to sing this sort of house around, are we not? The ground floor consisted of a shop off the main street, with a parlour and or kitchen to the rear. The grandest reception room was on the first floor, with bedrooms then stacked above and possibly even a garret room in the attic at the top. We did everything you could to steal every single extra inch of space, so you'd have progressively projecting jetties on the first and second floors, maybe a bay window or two. The Harvard House is also an exercise in status building. It's got elaborate carvings and timber work on the outside. It is a one-bay house, but the grander and wealthier merchants might expand sideways at all and have two or even three bay houses. Inside, the houses were again richly decorated. Painting directly onto the wall panels was a common way of carrying on. If you're looking for another fine example, you might hop over to Plymouth and the Elizabethan House Museum as well. So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. I have warbled on far, far too long, I'm sorry, once described by Benjamin Disraeli as being inebriated with the exuberance of his own verbosity. Sorry about that. That famous insult, by the way, as you may know, was directed at a far more impressive rival, William Gladstone, of whom Dizzy again famously said that he had not a single redeeming defect, which is a nice line, is it not? I mean... You surely have to prefer Gladstone the statesman, but I'd rather have Dizzy round for supper. Anyway, definitively enough of the warbling. I hope you've had a hoot. I know I have. And I commend the History of England website unto you, both for the picks and plans, and for the English Revolution prize, draw and poll. See you next week to talk about those gorgeous prodigy houses of the great and the life they supported, and the aspirant gentry who tried to look like them. Good luck, everyone and have a great week. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping 
and 365-day returns.